Hi everyone, I'm Lahiru and this is Casey Park with me and today we're going to do a really special episode because this is the first time I think we're, we're doing a double podcast for yeah. ABC of Anesthesia and Broomdoc. So welcome Casey. Thanks for inviting me Lahiru. <laughs> Uh, so pretty much what, what, what we want to talk about was very specific to the outside of the metropolitan context, which is when you get obstetric patients and how do you decide whether they're going to be okay to be done in a rural or remote context? And, you know, I'm, I'm here in Broome with Casey. He comes up here regularly as a visiting GP in Eastis, but you're, you're also, you're an emergency physician. Uh, I'm not really, but I work in a big hospital, yep. <laughs> Sounds good. And you're a GP. GP. And from what I know, you do a bit of everything. You've got your ultrasound form yep. qualification. Yep. And you run Broomdocs podcast. And I think you just contribute to all the education around Australia, really. <laughs> I, I like turning up on other people's podcasts. It's my hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Cross-pollination. Um, yeah, so I thought we'd just kind of launch straight into it. The, the, the specific... Kind of objective that we want to talk about is the indications for referral of pregnant patients, obstetric patients, to more specialised centres for obstetric anaesthesia. And you know, I work in a like you know tertiary obstetric hospital. I'm very fortunate that we rarely refer anyone out because we have a lot of facilities and a lot of expertise and whatever else, and you know, just a lot of systems in place. But uh, what is it like working in places you work? Yeah, so uh, this is a really great example of uh, where the GP anaesthetist really is at the centre of a lot of this decision-making because there's so many factors to consider when you think about obstetric anaesthetics. There's, there's the, the, the woman and what's going on with her. There's the baby and what's going on with the baby. There might be obstetric issues and there can also be issues of distance. And then there's a lot of social stuff that comes into it as well. So, you know, a, a woman with six kids is very unlikely to want to go to the city for, a, for an operation and obviously distance is also really important so if you're just next door to a big hospital yeah. that changes the, the calculation compared to say way up here in Broome where we're you know a couple of days drive from the next place so yeah, it, yeah. There's, there's a lot that goes in yeah so you, you and, and I like that this is patient-centered care but it sounds like you're going to have a lot of tension between let's say a patient comes in and they've got so many reasons to just want to be in Broome or another rural centre and you think that they really, based on all the other factors, probably should go to an external centre for whatever reason and then there's tension that the patient would really want to stay and you're faced with that conundrum. Like, how do you...? Yes, it's it's a really tricky one And, and the conversation in my head goes... Obviously, there are some things that are complete deal breakers. So there's some things like mathematically, for example, in Broome, we're only allowed to do women up to a certain BMI. And once they're above that BMI, then it's sort of automatic referral. And in some way, those are the easy ones, usually because you can't change math. <laughs> Although we do have women that get a little bit taller occasionally. <laughs> um, and so, so there's some things that are just like local policy, but for the, I'd say for 90% of our patients, it comes down to that shared decision-making because we know that, you know, for example, things like BMI, the risk starts to creep up as your numbers get higher, mm-hmm. but it's not like a cut and, you know, there's not like a magic line in the sand where it's definitely high risk or definitely low risk. And, mm-hmm. and you have to sort of go through all that your thorough anaesthetic assessment mm-hmm. and sort of have a chat to the patient, see how risk-averse they are. And obviously, yeah. amongst GP and ethicists out there in the bush, there's different levels of experience and, and what I might be comfortable with may be different to what you or, or one of my colleagues would be. So yeah. um, it, it's really tricky. And, and so you sort of need to have a good understanding of, of that risk and, and what it actually means in terms of your hospital and for the patient's experience. Yeah, so that's interesting about the cutoff. So uh, I, I work in a small private hospital that does have a BMI 
limits that's suggested, but once a patient reaches that limit, then it's up to the an anesthetic and surgical discretion. Yep. And often, because I'm just doing very, very low risk operations, we often just say, yeah, as long as they have just minimal sedation, they can have this procedure. And, you know, we know that's pretty safe. Yep. Um, but is this a hard limit that hospitals have here or in other contexts? Yeah. It, it is a hard limit um, within our health system here, um, which is which is good because you know we all like to have a rational reason for making these decisions. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way, particularly in really remote practice like up here in Broome. In that, in that often women might turn up at thirty nine weeks, and <laughs> that's the first time you've seen them, and and it's really too late to make that decision at that point. So, um, so so the way we tend to get around that is we tend to have a really team centered approach. In that, I, I would never make that decision on my own I'd get two or possibly even three of my colleagues to sort of sit down and think about this case with me and and you know I've been doing this a long time and my level of comfort may be different to to one of my more junior colleagues and so you sort of have to plan for I guess be a bit of a pessimist and plan for the worst case scenario um, but within the within the limits of what is actually possible because yeah. um, so if a patient refuses to go it can be really really tricky so interesting I guess that's a good good tip it's definitely a shared decision made model yep. or what my one of my registrars told me as an intern share the blame share the blame yeah uh, so that's, that's a really <laughs> well, useful well, I, I know who the most conservative of my colleagues is so I usually just phone them and if they're oh, happy yeah. to do the case then that's great so it's about knowing your team and <laughs> that's one of the beauties of working in a small hospital is that you sort of know your mates well yeah yeah okay yeah so uh that's interesting so let, let's say that's actually a good thing to address in my mind i've got this framework that I'll always be thinking about not just the patient and their pathology, but also, you know, the place I'm at, the yep. personnel and the team I have, um, and maybe the, um, like the, the staff, the post-op monitoring and all that kind of stuff, yep. as well as, um, uh, and so those are probably the main factors, but all of this is in an elective context. So like you said, if it's emergency and someone comes at 39 weeks right there in labor with some kind of issue, yep. then you have to crack on. So yep. this is purely discussing maybe the indications referral for Ele a yeah, elective context. Yep. So, I mean, let's talk more about that. So, patient comes in with, uh, you know, a patient has their unique circumstance and their pathology. Yep. Uh, yeah. What other what other kind of factors then? Yeah. So, I guess uh, I, th I think a healthy dose of anaesthetic pessimism, uh, in that you look at the patient and usually say a pregnant woman who's planning to deliver, or maybe she's due to have an elective cesarean section. Mm -hmm. You sort of imagine what are all the things that could go wrong? And in the worst case scenario, what would be happening? So, you know, it's usually a general anaesthetic with a big bleed yep. uh, would be the things that would sort of make me think this, this is something I need to plan for in my head. And so if, if, if this woman's had previous airway difficulties or she looks really difficult or has an untested airway uh, and there's a lot of unknowns, then that, that would be something that would make me push that patient more towards let's refer to tertiary for that for those reasons whereas if you and if, if obviously there's a lot of obstetric factors so if the placenta is a bit low and the obstetrician's mm. telling you that they're a bit worried mm -hmm. um then or there's you know they're querying you know placenta accreta or something like that then those sorts of things that are out of our hands and i i try to push that back to the obstetrics team and see how comfortable they are but but mm. generally um those are things that would push me more towards going that way so i sort of plan in my head for what would be the worst case scenario on the day mm. and how would i feel if, if that were to happen and um uh, usually, um, you know, for, for the vast majority of women, they don't really have any young, healthy women. They don't really have any reasons to refer them, so we're happy. But um, I sort of do that sort of 
anesthetic pessimism sort of yeah. sort of fantasy in my head and think what could possibly go wrong? Am I happy with all of the above? So yeah, I right. And, and I guess, so let's say, for the, you know, a junior anesthetist in training or GP anesthetist who are going out into this rural environment, usually there's going to be senior people there that will know the lay of the land. But when you, well, the way you think about it is what's most likely to go wrong, so bleeds. And yep. so do we have the systems? Do we have a massive transfusion protocol, a blood bag, maybe a hematologist on call? Yep. Um, do you have the level one? Do you have all those facilities to replace blood blood rapidly? And then uh, that's common. And then if they've got any other specific things, so airway problems, or any weird and wonderful diseases, yeah, bleeding so, deaths. Yeah. yeah. And often they're things like, you know, platelet issues and things mm -hmm. like that. So these are things that we usually know well in advance. So we can sort of plan for that. So that those are things that we can yeah. get, get ahead of. But um, I guess... It's that real team-based approach as well because we never operate on our own with these situations and you've always got someone nearby. I think probably the other thing that we mentioned because this is obstetrics, obviously, mm -hmm. is like plan A is always to do a spinal uh, yeah. for for other, you know, elective or emergency deliveries usually. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the one thing that is a bit different to the rest of anaesthetics and yes. that it's usually spinal is not plan A. Right. And, and you often you look at women and you think, this could be easier, it could be hard. Yep. And I guess that's where it really comes down to your level of comfort. So so I know a lot of junior GP anesthetists, they might have done 40, 50, 100 cesareans, yes. but you don't know how good you are until you've missed one. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. and it's and that's usually the, the rate limiting step is we've all had that experience where we haven't been able to get a spinal in and, yeah. and it's very humbling. And and so certainly over my career, I've had that happen a few times where I've sort of gone back to my own sort of level of skill and thought, what's my plan B? Because you need to have a plan B for all absolutely. these situations here. I mean, let's backtrack to actually one thing you mentioned, which was the low-lying placenta and the adhesive placental disorders placenta created. Yep. Could you tell us, like, what is the issue with low-lying placenta and then these adhesive disorders, what, what happens with those? Yeah, so, well, I'm, I'm not an obstetrician, but I'm just yeah, a paranoid yeah. anaesthetist. But, um, yeah. <laughs> the, As am I, yeah. <laughs> um, So, essentially... With the, with the low-lying placentas, particularly my understanding from the obstetric world is that they're more anterior mm -hmm. and, and there's going to be a caesarean or potentially a caesarean happening and the obstetricians are going to have to make their incision yeah. through that, then that's the big issue where there's going to be a lot of bleeding mm -hmm. and particularly in women that have had previous caesareans and have a scar where the placenta may be adherent or possibly invading into that scar, then we know that those are really high risk for bleeding. And to be honest, like if once we've got that on the on cards, we really shouldn't be doing those, I think, in most rural areas because yeah. uh, I think we just don't have the resources in the blood bank to deal with it. And yeah. um, I know that in tertiary hospitals, they usually are running things like Rotem and all sorts of yeah, things, yeah, to, right. uh, which we're definitely not doing in the country. So, yeah. so in some ways, those aren't too scary because you usually know about them in advance mm -hmm. uh, with all the ultrasound that happens nowadays. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, and I remember looking at the stats on this. So if you had one previous Caesar, there's some rate of up to 10% of yeah. having a creed if you have a low-lying placenta over that. Once you get to like three or four or five previous Caesars yeah. and a low-lying placenta, it's almost like flipping a coin whether you're going to have an adhesive placenta, which is horrible when, when the surgeons, if you've ever seen them trying to take this accretor out, it, it, it's just attached to it. It, yeah. it just doesn't come out and the, the uterus doesn't contract. It's always already poor contracting in the lower segment and now it's just not yeah. doing anything and it's just <laughs> yeah it's just horrible it, it is a, it is something that it's probably my worst case scenario for yeah. up here in Broome is if you're pushed into a corner where you have to operate on someone yeah. like that and 
uh, we, most rural hospitals don't have the the blood bank facilities. Like, yeah. like we can all put in big lines, but if you don't actually have yeah. the have the, the facilities and you don't have all those fancy sort of things that can stop bleeding, and you don't have the surgical capabilities often to to do that, because often we're working with GP obstetricians as well. So yeah. you know they may not be really comfortable with putting in a lot of these devices that can yeah, save the day. Yep. Yes, and yeah, it, it, it's almost like the question: if you have any kind of thought of this is going to go badly with bleed, you know, having that very early conversation, whether it's before the case of doing, you know, what are your next steps, you know, whether you are using the battery balloon or doing a B-Lynch suture or yep. can you do a hysterectomy because, hey, yep. we, we, this is our only option now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the three longest nights of my career have involved this exact scenario. So, yeah, it never happens in the daytime. It always <laughs> happens at three in the morning <laughs> and there's no one else around here. What is that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, okay. So, we've got this. Uh, okay, that, that's interesting. So, you've got your bleed wrist stuff uh, and everything that goes along with that, which is patient-specific, and then actually finding out what your hospital has. Often asking the experienced niece this, what GP needs is already there really is your, is your go-to for whether you can do a case or not. Yep. Particular patient issues um, like, you know, BMI. Uh, any other, like in your experience, do you get some late presentations of just random diseases like neurological yeah. musculoskeletal? Or yeah, so um, I guess it's maybe a little bit more specific to broom, but we, um, we do tend to see a lot of young women that have sometimes quite advanced uh, rheumatic heart disease who rock in, you know, some usually 30-something weeks uh, having not had a lot of antenatal care and sometimes with quite good going mitral disease, for example, or severe aortic disease. And and that's really tricky from an anaesthetic point of view because we, we all know that, you know, people with really bad heart disease plus pregnancy and then you give them a GA or a spinal or whatever it is, it, it can very quickly go pear-shaped. So, and so that's something that we sort of think about a lot up here in broom and I, I guess um it's more of a maternal factor that we see a bit of so we it's nice to have some echocardiography and know exactly what's going on with all of that which is probably something that maybe we don't think about too much in sort of down south but it's, it's certainly a big problem up here um yeah. and would you say there's any absolute cutoffs like like i'm thinking in my head if someone's got heart failure of any sort yeah yeah or any stenotic valve lesions it'd probably be a no yeah I, I think if you're if you're really if if you if they do have severe disease, then it's easy. Yeah. But often we have those unknowns, yes. and I think you can get an echo, but echoes can also be not quite entirely accurate. So I think if you know that there's at least moderate valve disease, particularly the stenotic ones, then it's 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 easier just to refer those patients on because that's more about the post-op stuff. Because you know you can still put them off to sleep and tube them and do all that, but yeah. but it may not may go particularly badly after that. So I think having an ICU as backup and, and having cardiothoracics or, you know, an interventional cardiologist that can help you out that doesn't exist outside of the metro. So I think that's useful. Yeah. yeah. How about the other legion? Like, let, let's say any kind of aortic stenosis, minor stenosis, Hockham, yep. Uh, yep, pretty much we're going to refer these. Absolutely. To moderate or any kind of severity. Um, but how about regurgitant lesions? Do you reckon those w- would be okay? Um, but yeah. Specific, yeah, it's getting very specific. I think I think if you know about them in advance and, and you think that that's something, like obviously we see a lot of mild disease because we have a lot of up here. So if you've got someone with mild disease and you've done your proper anaesthetic assessment and, and they seem to have good physiological reserve and they don't have any symptoms, you might, that's probably one where I would say that's reasonable. But as soon as you start getting into that moderate 
range. I think it's just easier to send them out because um, I, I, I don't think you're gaining anything by keeping them here um, in, in the rural areas. And to be honest, like once they've had the baby, then they're in the right place to get the appropriate interventions if they need to, because uh, sometimes they do need something done. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's reasonable to do. Um, I think we put a lot of there's a lot of pride in country about, oh, let's keep these pe people in country. But um, I've seen that go wrong as well. And I think and spending a week in the city is not the end of the world. Uh, <laughs> and so you sort of need to be realistic about what you can and can't do. So I, I don't roll the dice if I'm not, if especially if there's unknowns. Um, yep. Yeah, that's interesting. I get the sense that it's not like the Wild West. You know, it really is. You go to these rural centres and... The, the decision making is conservative and and you know rightfully so. Yeah. And you know it would be extenuating circumstances for you know whatever other reason that you maybe are forced to crack on. With. Yeah. And I, I guess in some ways there's emergency scenarios where you know a woman just rocks in and she's you know got bad heart failure or but she's already in labour or you know ha having a bleed. In some ways you know you don't have a choice and that's sort of how we get our experience unfortunately as we we learn from that but if you if you've got the elective option then i think it's just easy to push those people to a big center yeah yep. good to know yep so it's pretty much i mean that really is kind of the patient and pathology stuff i think covered yep um if we move on to and we, and we touched on place yep. because then it really is the systems of you know do you have the in this when you're a particular hospital where you fiber optic gear and yeah bank and things yep in the yeah, in the obstetric context, you know, what, what do you what other things that come up in your career about you know, the place that you work at and suitability? So, so I guess in terms of place, if you look at Australia as a whole, there's a big range of, of place. So obviously Broome, we're a medium-sized hospital. We've got some really good experienced GP anaesthetists. And so we might take on more, and we're a long way from, from the city, so we might take on a bit more than, say, they do in, in Derby or, or somewhere that's a bit closer to the city where referral is much easier. So you sort of need to understand your team and the resources within the hospital. Um, and so I think knowing that when you go out into the country is really important to sort of think about what place is um, and and the I guess the other thing is that sometimes transfer is an easy option um, in that you can just put the patient on a plane or but but sometimes transfer is not a really easy option especially if the woman's already in labor and so we've certainly had that experience over the years where we've had to make that call where what's the better thing to do do we put this woman who may deliver a very premature baby on a plane and hope that they get to the big centre or do we keep them here where they're hopefully if they're going to give birth we've got all the resources around it and it's not in a plane in the middle of the night yeah. so um that that has come up a few times over my career where we've had to sort of make that decision as to where the best place is to deliver that patient and um, this is their kind of almost an active labor in, in yeah or they're in labor or they're having a bleed or something that means that the obstetricians just want to crack on and get the baby out so yeah so that can be a really tricky one and certainly that is, is something that you really want to sit down with a whole team obstetrics pediatricians and yeah. think about the whole thing about and your retrievalists as well about what the right thing to do is because, um, you know, I've, I've had women over the years that have we've put them on um, tocolytics and they've stopped at like 9.7 centimetres and you're like, oh, what do we do now? <laughs> so it's, it's really tricky. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, they just stopped and you think, right, well, the plan was to get them out and now we can't really fly them in this state. <laughs> yeah, so, so there's some really tricky scenarios that do come up in obstetrics. Um, yeah, because that, yeah, I guess that place thing then really... You know, again, you are thinking of the blood bank and the neonatal services and you know, um, you know, whether they have the space for that in this hospital. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you mentioned, like, the fact that you're, you know, if you're in Broome, you're a 
moderate sized hospital really far away, that almost always becomes a problem. Yeah. You know, or a factor in why you keep them there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really tricky. Um, and I think WA is a little bit different to a lot of Australia in that we tend to have these really big distances. So it's, so it's, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to make that call. A lot of places like, you know, rural New South Wales and Queensland, sometimes it's an hour's flight or, you know, a short drive to the to the bigger centre. Yeah. And so you you may have a completely different matrix in your head about how you make those decisions yeah. in those places. But it's something that you really want to ponder on and think about with your team mm-hmm. sort of, you know, at a CME meeting and yeah. just go through some of these scenarios and say, what would we do if this were to happen? Because yeah, right. uh, it can be quite lonely when these yeah. things come up. We're just checking on the WhatsApp group. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> As you said, for share the plan. <laughs> um, I mean, as we're going through this, obviously, you know, we're touching on lots of different areas. But I mean, are there rigid or very protocolized rules about this transfer and, and referral? Um, no, not particularly. It very much comes down to a case by case basis, um, and like a lot of a lot of patient factors and a lot of obstetric factors come into it. Um, so. It really is something that you need to be actively talking to your colleagues about all the time. So I'd say most of these are, apart from some very general cutoffs like the BMI thing and that where it's maths, uh, most of this is just case-by-case basis. So, yeah. Are ASA cutoffs? Are they? ASA Yeah, so we, we tend not to do, so we do ASA 1 and 2. We Generally, we don't do ASA 3, um, depending on what their ASA 3 is. Yeah, um, a, yeah pregnant, pregnant lady of childbearing age, the ASA 3, that's a... That's pretty rare. Yeah. <laughs> And those are the those are our heart disease patients usually, or people with kidney problems yeah, up here. Something and, yeah, there's something wrong. Um, and then obviously there's um, gestational age. You know, so we we obviously don't do uh, premature babies. And over the last couple of years, we've crept back to doing smaller and smaller and earlier and earlier babies. Uh, but we had a, more pediatricians in a nursery now, and so that's something you really got to know as well. Um, to, I mean, that's probably good to touch on. So yeah. in, in terms of. You know, we're talking about place and pathology and and, and patient yep. and uh, personnel. So the obstetrician, their services, especially in the inhaled services. Yep. Yeah. How, how low would you go down here? Yeah. So so thirty five weeks is what our thing is at the moment. Although we certainly often pushed into the corner where we're doing smaller patients, and often we're the ones that end up managing the airway as well. So um, it's it, it can be quite tricky. We we try and avoid doing less than thirty five weeks, but it's a common problem, unfortunately, in the north part of Australia that we can have this um, prematurity. So uh, we do try and avoid anything under that. But particularly if you've got a really like growth-restricted baby or, you know, got severe maternal diabetes or whatever and you just know that they're going to run into trouble, it's not a deal breaker, but it, it's something that would push us more towards tertiary if we're thinking, well, if, if, if the anaesthetic I'm a bit iffy about and I know that this baby's going to come out and need to go to a tertiary NICU, there's just no point in keeping them in a small hospital, I don't think. So So sometimes it, it can be a nice excuse for us if we've got a baby that needs help. <laughs> we can say, right, you can all go. <laughs> so yeah. that can be useful, yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like so 35 weeks. And, and that would be broom, but definitely not another centre. So yeah, so, be a bit or, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think broom's thirty-five. I think the others are thirty-seven, or you know, basically yeah, term, term, and if they if they're too much earlier, and that comes down purely to the paediatrics and neonate side of it, really. Yeah. Do you have a big um, kind of, I guess, home midwifery or doula led, or um, even I guess um, indigenous 
like support services for leavers at home that, that you may have to take care of everything? Yeah, so it has been an issue over time and I think a lot of parts, rural parts, it's a very popular thing is to have this sort of um, home midwife service. So we... Uh, we try and avoid <laughs> any home births here in, in the Kimberley. Uh, but, yes, there's certainly there is a very strong sort of Indigenous women's clinic at the local AMS that try to do all the management and do a great job. Um, and which The Aboriginal Medical Service, yeah. yeah. Yep, so that's all done through there and, and community midwives that go out and visit. But uh, fortunately we haven't had too many actual home births over the years so that's good a few a few we've had in the ambulance bay <laughs> but, yeah okay good um uh, that's interesting to think there's um i mean uh, we just don't see too many i mean the pro- yeah, problems obviously rare when they when they go wrong it becomes disastrous and that's when you really have to step into gear but you know after in the big city hospitals i, I haven't seen too many of that so that's been yeah it's uh, I, one thing i would say is that um a sick mum and a sick baby, if you've got a scenario where you've got a, a woman that's unwell and, and then the baby comes out unwell, is that very quickly, even in a reasonably big place like Broome, that very quickly uses up your whole team and, and that can go on for hours and hours and and it's amazing how much resource that burns. And it, you, you, as the GPA, you sort of have to think about the bigger picture as well as what else is going on in the hospital. Like that's not the only patient. There's heart attacks in the ED and there's trauma coming in as well. So if, you, if that's something that you've thought about in your pessimistic planning sort of mode, like how much resource is this going to use, that could be another reason to sort of think maybe we're better off going somewhere else because it can be incredibly um, taxing on the whole hospital when you have something like that. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, I mean, I think about it all the time in my kind of tertiary hospital context where, you know, am I going to start an elective-ish Caesar when I've got, you know, 20 labor women plus one that's got preeclampsia and another one, you know, maybe HDU is full or something yeah. like that. You don't want to start a new case. And you know, if you're in this new hospital, to be able to think about what else is going on in the hospital or have they called in a trauma, then, you know, to stop doing everything and just wait for the disaster, yeah. you know. Yep. Yeah. That, that never works that way. Women yeah. always give birth. <laughs> it's exactly the wrong moment, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, 3 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Actually, what are your thoughts? So, I mean, we've probably covered most of these kind of factors of patient pathology, personnel, place. Uh, in terms of the patient, what, what is the sense that if someone is a, a likely difficult spinal yep. and likely to go to a general anesthetic, yep. is that something that's kind of seen as you know, high risk and we wouldn't want to do it? Or- yeah, it's, it's really tricky. And obviously, you know, if we know the obstetric history and you can look back and see how your mate struggled two years ago, that's always the, the, the best thing. Yeah. Um, it, it's something that we discuss a little bit and uh, no offence to tertiary hospitals, but but like our team up here, we have like everyone's a 15 to 20 year veteran of obstetric anaesthetics here. And, and you think, are we actually worse at putting in these spinals than if they go down to the tertiary and the second year registrar does it? Like it's sort of like, you know, like for at least they've got the old consultant there that will help them. And I think... Um, it, it's certainly a consideration and, and like we all like to have a look at the back and have a feel, but it can be really tricky to know exactly how difficult until you've actually started trying to explore that yes. spine. And um, I've I got to confess, I'm an ultrasound tragic. And um, and so I think ultrasound has changed that that decision-making in my head a little bit in that I'm reasonably confident now that if if I can't feel anything, I'll actually in the clinic get the ultrasound out and have a look and if I'm 
happy that I've got good views and I think, yep, I can get this in, um, then I'm quite happy to proceed with that sort of case because I think ultrasound has changed things a bit. And at the end of the day, if I if it's an elective caesarean and I get my ultrasound and I, and I still can't do it, I haven't actually lost too much. Like I can al- always yeah. still, you know, call a friend or or put that person on the plane that you know that next day and get them to the city for their elective procedure. Yeah. But I think it's I think ultrasound has changed that a bit. I think that the number of women who, you know, I think I'm not going to be able to get this in is is very small now. So yeah. there's still be I'm sure it'll happen one day. It hasn't happened for a few years, but um, I I tend to be if I get asked to come in as the second because someone's struggling to get an, a, a spinal in. I, I just go for ultrasound yeah, straight away now. Yep. It's, it's almost, I find that it's nice to be the second person because yeah. I haven't um, lost their confidence by having the you know, five attempts previously. Yep. And also, you know, it, it, I guess something, so people who are just training, it's, it's just no shame in missing the, the first spinal because it's through, you know, say my colleague had some failures, I know, now learn from their experience yeah, yeah. failure to make I'm standing on their shoulders in a way and I would yeah. have probably done the same method that they did. Yeah, um, yeah. And maybe they look really difficult with scoliosis or whatever, maybe for the ultrasound. I'm, but often I just have a crack anyway. Is it, more often than not, even a BC and scoliosis, you're fine. Like, yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. I am... Um, <laughs> It's the same with IV access. I know that you've. This is something that you've made videos about. But, but I, I have a thing I call Parker's paradox. Whereas if you get cold and someone's already got like seven sticky dots on their arm, you know all the bad veins are used. So the one that's left has to be the right one. Right. <laughs> so the space that hasn't been tried yet, that's where you want to go. <laughs> one thing. <laughs> yeah, and the blood has to get back to the heart somehow. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. There's definitely a vein. Yeah. It just depends how deep it is. and uh, Yeah, yeah. Ultrasound, once again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, how about a GA? I, I know when I was training, based on data from the UK, I believe it was, which was a lot of less trained NSA registrars by themselves managing obstetric airways, yeah. which is in a rush, bad positioning with all the pregnancy issues of low FRC and yeah, yeah. You know, bad badness. Yeah. And so, we had really high rates of you know, failed airways in pregnant ladies. This Absolutely. Was old data. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking at new data is actually not too bad. And that's my feeling that yeah. actually, this is not a bad airway. So, GA for cesareans, is that if you know you're going to do a GA yep. in this context, it, are there certain hospitals that would say, no, look, we don't do GA seizures? It's really interesting, and this this comes up. We have a, a chat group that's Australia wide, which you're part of now, um, and and this comes up pretty much every year when the new registrar the new registrars graduate and go out into the bush, and they get told by the hospital, "No, you can't do that here." And and like I'm old, and I trained in that era when everyone was like completely paranoid about doing GA because you just think everything's going to go horribly wrong, uh, and and, and it, you know it still can go wrong. But as you said, proper preparation is the most important thing. And if you with the stuff we have now with the you know, nice ramping pillows and the ox- ox- ethnic oxygenation and everything else. It's actually, you know, I'd, I'd much rather tube a obstetric patient than most of the traumas I do. Yeah. Uh, or, the, or like the, the guy that's got really severe pneumonia that we tube without sort of thinking too hard about it. So I'm, I think I think we've overblown that risk a little bit. Um, but having said that, this is an elective procedure and this is one where the patient, if, if they're electing to have a GA for whatever reason, actually a really important thing I would say, and I'll, I'll go, come back to the GA thing in a minute, but most of the women over the years that I've had come into the clinic saying that they refuse to have a spinal or an epidural, they, they only want to have a GA, it's 
pretty much about, I'd say most of them have been about misperceptions mm. and they've had a horrible experience. Usually they've had an epidural in and then someone's topped it up and it hasn't really worked very well and they've had a horrible traumatic birth. And if you just spend 10 or 15 minutes with them and go through that experience, often you can remove that fear and they don't really want a GA anymore. They're quite happy to, because there's a big difference between that and having a simple elective spinal in a you know theatre with the music playing and everything else. So <laughs> I, I think... And, and to take it even further, if I have a woman who does have a horrible epidural top-up experience, I make a point of going back and talking to them the next day or the day after that and doing some counselling and explaining that, you know, in three years' time when you're having another baby, you know, if that's something that you need to think that we will do it very differently. Actually, really good. You're, you're managing the problem in the future. That's yeah, because what, what would future me not yeah. like to be <laughs> battling? So I think that's I think that's something that we as GP and ethicists should be doing really well. And, and so you can avoid that scenario. But anyway, go back to doing the GA. I, I think it's something that we can do and um, we probably should be doing. At the, at the end of the day, women get to make these choices about what they want. Um, and I, I think our risk is overblown in our head. And so I think, yes, doing a GA in a small hospital is fine. Um, but you need, once again, you need to have your team. If the paediatricians aren't on board, if they feel uncomfortable with it, then it's a no-go. Yeah. Um, the obstetricians are always happy with that sort of thing because <laughs> it makes their job easier. Um, and, and, and I guess... The, the bleed risk. The bleed risk is, yeah. As long as you remember to turn the nitrous on, <laughs> or start TIVA, more environmentally, yep. your uterus won't... Uh, be lax and it will actually contract. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's I think that's something that you really need to sort of have a team based approach. But I'm much more relaxed about that nowadays. Um, and I guess the other thing to say is that that risk of GA doesn't really change whether they're which hospital they're in because it's if you're a, if you're a conservative GP and ethicist and you do all your planning, you're probably just as likely to get it right as anyone else, unless they've got a horrible looking airway or they're telling you that they had to have an awake fibre optic for their gallbladder last time. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> so, you know, you take all these things and, and, and look at it all together. But I, I think we should be doing that where necessary. Um, it is interesting, like the whole the concept of as soon as you change the context to, like, a, you know, trauma, patient comes in, you give a GA without even thinking because that's just what needs to happen. Yep. You're pushed to do that by a lot of, you know, it's the right decision, tradition, the, the processes that happen versus a well person not expected to have a bad outcome and you've been told that GA is more risk and you've got a baby to consider. It, it, it is, a you know, it's, it's such a spanner in the works of a normal decision-making tree just that suddenly the context is very different and, yeah, I mean, I've just thought about that so often when people in one context, they'll use sucks, sucks methodium, yep. which is high anaphylaxis risk, like it's lolly water, you know, ECT yep. list. We just use sucks like we don't care. Yep. But as soon as you have to decide on giving a bit of sucks for a laryngospasm, you're like, oh, oh <laughs> or you're trying to choose sucks for a short case versus putting an LMA in because of a slight aspiration risk. You suddenly get really focused on the fact that it sucks. And that's just a contextual thing. Right? Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. We we worry about risks that are sometimes two decimal places further over uh, for elective stuff than we do for stuff that we just have no say in whatsoever because it's just going to happen no matter what we do. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's something you, we all just sort of need to meditate on beforehand when we do these things. And obviously, you, we cowboys, we don't want to be cowboys, but I think in the modern era with all the kit we've got and, and the drilling and the planning we do with Kaiko situations and everything, I think we're actually pretty pretty safe for doing these cases. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Um, so I think we've covered quite a bit of detail about and, and probably a overly framework for everyone to kind of consider as they're 
you know, in, if you're training in Estes or GP in Estes, just to consider what it's like in the rural context. And even though we've looked at the framework of obstetric referral, really this applies to so many other situations. You're thinking about patient pathology, place personnel, um, and also the post-op location and what, what resources you have. So yeah, just as a framework, I think that still holds well. And I, I'd, I'd say I'd use this kind of on reflex every, every day that I'm considering cases because you never know. You're not just going to get the regular case that comes in for a simple gyneop or a lap collie. It's always a bit different. And now that I'm in, you know, working in Broome uh, for a bit, I'm really thinking about that more than I've ever had to think because I'm like, oh, I'd normally just do this or I wouldn't do this. And yeah. you know, what's the context now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it is tricky, but I, I don't think there are hard and fast answers. And, yeah. and, and the stuff that you can control, the stuff that you can't control. Yeah. And, and then this is gray bit in the middle. And I, I guess a lot of it is just about trying to make that gray bit as small as possible and trying to yeah. and sitting with your team and, and nutting it out because I think over the years, sometimes just having a chat with one of your colleagues, the, the answer becomes very clear very quickly once yeah. you have a chat with one of your colleagues and they go, well, why would you do that? Right. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, so, just make sure that people are comfortable saying no to you. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so you to, yeah, yep. this is actually very dangerous. Cool. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Um, as our yeah, first combined Boombox and ABC's Anesthesia podcast has been great. And uh, I guess, uh, yeah, if you enjoyed listening to this, please share with anyone who might be interested. And we'll see you next time for further information about anesthetic related issues. See you then. See ya.